we started by you know designing vehicles and then we quickly realized that actually what needs a fundamental redesign is the production method we haven't changed it for a hundred years we've optimized it it's incredible you know i'm not going to sit here and say it doesn't work it's not amazing i love car factories they're incredible but if you use today's technology would you design it that way today and our view was no no way it's too limited Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association and the director of special operations at Argo AI, whom I never represent on this show. Surely never, ever. And this is Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor over at TechCrunch. And today we are actually pulling a guest we had on stage in real life um, at the TC Sessions Mobility event, Avinash Rugabar, president of Arrival. And we had some more questions for him. So we're like, you have to come on the podcast now. And uh, so Avinash is here with us today to talk about Arrival, microfactories, EV concept, maybe some other stuff too, because he's had his hands in a lot of other things as well. So maybe we can get some, some information about his past exploits. Uh, Avinash, Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Cool. Um, well, Alex, I know that you had a lot of questions for Ed, um, but before we jump in, I just want to set the scene a little bit. So, Avnash, you came on our stage a couple of weeks ago now, and you unveiled the in real life version of this concept EV that you're building, that Arrival's building for Uber in the UK. So it's limited to that. Um, can you just give us like a really brief rundown of the progress of that project and when you expect it to sort of actually become something that's available to drivers? Yeah, so we started that project uh, with Uber just over six months ago. And uh, actually, no, it's been about close to 12 months now. And we initially had the prototype ready um, in December of last year. And so that's the prototype that we did together at TechCrunch in the Valley. Uh, it was very well received and really was just built around the idea that uh, with our microfactory process, we can sort of enter markets that the uh, typical uh, production volume that's needed by the OEMs wouldn't let them enter and then scale from there. And obviously, the ride sharing, ride hailing market is growing rapidly, over 30 million drivers worldwide. And we just found uh, uh, the ability to take all of our components that we're using on other vehicles like the bus and the van and re basically refactor them into a form factor of a of a car and particularly designed around ride shelling and ride hailing so the future of that project is very much um you know you did mention uk um first but you know there's no limitation for us uh, to continue into other regions with that and um you know we will continue to progress that program but right now you know it's a very big year for arrival because we're starting production of the the van in um, what I believe is an industry-first production on in a microfactory. So, you know, that is really where the whole focus of the organization is. And then once we complete that, we'll shift on to the other projects like CARP. Yeah, quick follow-up on that. Um, so this might be a good opportunity to sort of break down the core business seems to be more on the commercial side of things, which is, um, and Uber is kind of a weird mix, right? Because it, I guess you could kind of call it commercial, but it really is a consumer product. But is, would you say that the core focus and product is the bus and the van and that the the Uber concept and maybe even other projects that are similar to this um, are a smaller piece or or is it broken up in like, you know, 50-50? This is, there's this consumer piece and then there's this commercial piece. They're kind of equal yeah, company. I think right now, yeah, I mean, to, I think right now the focus is commercial vehicles. But to really get into that, it's because uh, we believe that that transition is going to happen faster. And so some of the technologies, for example, that we use, like if you take the composite material that we discussed at length, right? If you use that uh, today in a retail segment, you're going to be thinking about a lot more um, attributes of that material than you would be in a commercial vehicle segment. So vehicle commercial vehicle segment, you care about total cost of ownership. You care about uptime, 
you really don't want paint. So, you know, for your listeners that don't know, the, the composite material we use is able to imbue color without needing uh, a paint finish. So no paint shop and, and no metal stamping. Um, but that's actual a huge benefit in the commercial vehicle segment. Like you don't want a vehicle that gets scratched and you have to go to the paint shop and then you repair it and it costs a ton. All of that is sort of gone when you use the approach that we're taking. Then what it means is from there, you can refine those technologies further and further and enter multiple markets. So there's nothing about the technology or the method that can't go into retail. We're just choosing to focus on commercial now while we refine everything and our operations into the first start of production uh, because the market is willing to transition really rapidly and they're not thinking about the fashion and the design. It's really a functional vehicle. It's all about function. And we can tune the technologies to achieve the necessary attributes for those commercial vehicles. So that's why you've sort of seen 143,000 uh, LOIs for arrival. But more importantly, it's like there's, if you wanted to go buy these electric commercial vehicles and vans right now, uh, there's nothing really out there. You know, it's, it's, it's going to happen over the next few years that that's going to be a huge transition and we want to capture part of that market. Well, and, and I mean, um, so the, the vehicle that you've done with Uber, I mean, it looks more like a regular car you'd go out and buy than, than you know, your other your van and your bus, obviously. But still, it's, it's a purpose-developed vehicle for a specific use case, right? And um, I want to I ask you a little bit more about this because, you know, I've seen, um, for example, Car2Go when they came here to Portland, when they first launched with, with Smarts, which was a car sharing, a little different than ride, ride hailing. But um, they launched with smarts. Everyone loved them. They were simple. They were small. They were easy to use. It was like the product fit the service. And then, you know, because it was owned by an OEM, eventually they've cycled that fleet out and they put in whatever wasn't selling, which ended up being, you know, Mercedes CLA, GLA, um, which did not fit. And, and it really was such a cool lesson in like, don't dismiss these services until they actually been tried with products that really that really work for them rather than whatever's just not been selling. So I'm curious, sort of, what is some of the, the input you've gotten with Uber? What makes this vehicle different um, in a way that really, really sort of sets it apart for the specific use case and not kind of the general use that you, you look for in a, a consumer car? I mean, you, got, you, you hit it out the park there, Ed. I mean, I think you got it in one. It's, it's about the focus use of the... Um, technologies to create the attributes for that particular use case. So, you know, I'll touch. I'll go deeper in car in a second, but that's the philosophy that we've taken. Actually, if you think about the bus, the bus is partnered with First Bus, and we get the drivers in. We get you know all the feedback that we need from from them around how to really bring that vehicle alive in the um, in the depot environment, for example. How what sort of software they want from the vehicle, and so on and so forth. Um, the van is designed with UPS. So things like the floor height, how when you're holding a package, you know, we've got a capacitive touch that you can use your elbow, for example, because we work with the drivers, see how they're holding the packages. The floor height is lined up with the way their depots are set up and so on and so forth. So they're really designed around that sort of use case. And it's the same uh, with the car, which is working with Uber drivers. I mean, we, we, we've brought them in to sit with us at different stages of the design from really early when we were just sketching things to putting the uh, packaging studies together to doing box studies, which is, you know, the wooden things that you build and you get people to come and sit before you actually uh, start making a physical product all the way through to uh, the prototype. And even with the prototype, they're in there giving us further feedback. And so one of the examples that comes to mind is, is the uh, leg space that you have. So you basically... Um, sit in the back of that vehicle and you have so much room you know it's kind of akin to a black cab in the uk it's really large and and the front seat goes down so you can put your luggage in back seat uh, behind the back seat the way we've stacked the space is just enough for the airport run because we know the data of how many airport runs are done when luggage is carried in the vehicle etc so using that to design around it but then you have the things that you don't see as obvious right so things like the how easy it is to clean a vehicle. So when you have a typical retail vehicle in that segment, you probably don't notice it, but just go take a look at a car in the back seat and see how many sort of nooks and crannies there are for dirt and things to go in, right? That's not, it's designed more for look, obviously, and, and comfort. But when you are running it as, a, as your commercial vehicle, 
that's a pain. Like, I have to go and clean that. I have to go and figure out how to keep that clean when dust comes in and pathogens are going in and out. Um, when you sit there and you think about, you know, where's access to cup holders for the passenger, right? You have to flip down the middle seat to get to that. Some cars have it in the door, but it's not really structured around it. And so you take that and you start to think, well, what material should I be using? You know, I need to clean this vehicle day in, day out. But if I have sort of typical carpet and I do that, at some point that's going to fade. And then, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got maintenance costs there. That philosophy through the whole vehicle, you know, including not just the physical design, but the digital systems in the vehicle as well and connecting straight to Uber's back end and showing all the route and trip information on the touchscreen in the vehicle without the need for the phones. You know, you start to extrapolate all of that and you realize, you know, exactly to your point, these vehicles aren't designed for this use case. And so we've gone and literally created a vehicle that fits in that use case and you can't disassociate the two things, right? So sometimes these services seem like they don't work. It's because the product itself doesn't work for the service, you know, and, and, you know, we're looking to change that with this car in particular, but it's not limited to, uh, that application. If you wanted to purchase it at some point for your own daily driver, then, you know, have at it. Um, I know Alex probably has some questions, but I forgot to ask this actually on stage because you were talking about like paint and how this is, you know, using the composite material is easier for commercial product. But what happens with like a dent? Because when we have like metal, you know, like in a traditional vehicle, you can, you know, pop out dents and things like that. How does that work with composite materials? Um, maybe it doesn't scratch, but, you know, commercial vehicles get in little fender benders all the time. So what's that cost look like? And is it something where there will be service centers in which people can get these vehicles repaired? There will be, yes. Uh, what's actually really cool is that the composite material actually has flex in it. So when, so we've done, uh, you, we have these on YouTube. Uh, you can check these out. But essentially when we do like a sled test, the panels just pop back out. Like because the material itself has the flex, when there's the impact, it just basically the energy just transfers and it doesn't actually dent. Now at some point, of course, at enough velocity or energy into the system, it's going to break and then you have to, um, go and service it. But for these under 20 mile an hour dings that you mentioned that are most common in the commercial vehicle segment, the panels just bounce off. It's, it's quite incredible. And you can sort of see that um, if you check out, well, there's a brief clip of our crash test uh, of our van and you'll see the front quarter panel and you'll essentially see it compress and then bounce back out. And it is quite amazing. So different material, it's not just paint, it is actually its durability. They they react better to those low velocity crashes that you see um, in the commercial vehicle segment. And when you do have to change it, by the way, we, we can take the panel back and break it back down to the raw materials and cycle it back in. So it is 100% recyclable. So, I mean, the, uh, the vehicle, when I saw the Uber prototype vehicle at TechCrunch, it, it looked kind of, is it the Peugeot like 1007? Like there's some like interesting things that resembled it that were like super efficient form factors. And you, I think your statement was, um, what, what, footprint of a golf interior space of a Maybach. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. So, uh, but is not, is not the most popular Uber vehicle, at least in the United States, a Toyota Prius? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, uh, and is it because, and I think the math on the, uh, running costs favors, a hybrid internal combustion vehicle. So what are your thoughts on the availability and cost of uh, electric of batteries over time, let's say the next three to five years, versus um, hybrid vehicles uh, potentially being like actually legacy platform with a hybrid engine being a threat to this very product, which might be perfect, except for the availability of batteries and potentially charging networks. Yeah, I think, uh, so you raise a very valid point. Let's look at the Prius. So the Prius as an example, it is the most popular ride-sharing vehicle because of the math. And it comes back to this pure commercial decision. I'm running these vehicles. I want them to be, I want to maximize mark time and reduce my running cost. So when you think about what that is, there's sort of three key factors. There's the upfront purchase price. There's the day-to-day -day operational cost. And then there's residual value at end of life. Right, so those are sort of the three key metrics. We use our technologies 
in a way that, of course, the, the battery almost becomes like a fixed cost within that, right? I mean, it is changing, but it's like there, there's only so much you can do on the raw cost of the cells to change what sort of the floor of the vehicle's price uh, upfront price point can be. But you can do a lot of work on everything else. Um, and that's where, you know, the composites and smart design and integrated components in our case, where we drive the cost down on each component across multiple vehicles rather than just one, helps us to further reduce every bomb cost of everything else. And then the TCO we sort of discussed, right? It's about um, keeping uptime with, in our case, through data. So if there's ever any issue with the vehicle, the driver can see that ahead of time and make sure that they uh, get anything fixed if they need to. So predictive maintenance, the ongoing cost of any sort of incidents like an accident for materials, we've talked about that. And then the residual value at end of life. So the way we design the hardware is that it can be upgraded over time. So the hardware can actually be changed using our grid architecture for our components. So Does that include the batteries themselves? It can include the batteries. I don't have much to say on the car specifically, uh, but yes, it can include the battery. So the idea there is the battery goes into, uh, you know, second life or um, whatnot. And if there's other technologies that are even better than um, the current chemistry in the batteries, we can insert that into the vehicle. Now, so then you, you can hold your residual value higher, right, at the end of life. But to go back into the second part of the question, which is how does that compare to hybrid, uh, hybrid versus electric? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? I mean, we've all seen this market um, over the last, you know, nine months ago, we're like, oh, look at how battery prices are coming down. You know, look at that trend line. And now we're like, wow, look how battery prices are going up, you know, and we're going to see this sort of fluctuation, um, not just because of market dynamics, but also because of new technology introduction that's coming in. And I think this is a really important point, right? The, the, when you think about hybrid, half to three quarters of that powertrain has got a lot of the cost optimized to the most efficient point it can get. I mean, engines, power, like fuel, fossil fuel engines are at the highest level of efficiency for the lowest cost, right? Dollar per kilowatt or dollar per horsepower that they've ever been. And so you're going to find minimal sort of gains around that part. Now, the one part we both share is the battery. And now you're seeing the, whether they're startups or, you know, the LG chems of the world, et cetera, looking at what are the right chemistries and technologies for that battery part? So what I see is an initial very competitive market between hybrids and purely electric, especially in these first few years. But over time, there is much more capacity for innovation to drive down the cost within uh, battery in particular, cell technology, than there is in the overall hybrid approach. But we still have a problem with charging infrastructure. And that you know, that's not going to get solved easily. Um, what we know for us when we look at, particularly like the van and the bus, less so the car, is that we have depots. And depots are much easier to upgrade the infrastructure. It comes back down to why do we focus on commercial vehicles first. Infrastructure is one of the reasons we focus on commercial vehicles first, because you can upgrade that infrastructure uh, a lot easier than you can everywhere that you need for the retail space. So, so the depot, are you operating depots for the Uber vehicles on behalf of drivers who run in the Uber Uber platform? No, this isn't, I, I was mentioning, as I mentioned, specifically for van and bus. For Uber, we'll be relying on partners and um, existing infrastructure providers. But that's an interesting idea, though, because it, it sounds like a cloud kitchen for vehicles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, <like it. laughs> I, mean, I'm not, I don't know what the math is on that, but it's an idea. Um, and six months later, Avinash starts his cloud kitchen for uh, charging. You want to win this after this? <laughs> you know, we, you know, what we do say about the microfactories though. We use um, we use Nespresso. So we say the microfactory is the Nespresso machine, and the components are the coffee, the capsules, and when you put them together, you essentially have the coffee, which is the electric vehicle for us. And that's why I always say we make the systems that make vehicles. We don't make the vehicles themselves and so we had we had this idea like you know nespresso machine can be anywhere and same with the microfactory but um yeah i like that one too Alex. story <laughs> i have another one right so ed just it was uh tuning his, his his horn about having gone and poked around uh tesla's um as we learned non-existent battery swapping technology from like seven years ago they said they were going to have battery swap they did um 
Is, are did you consider battery swapping yeah. as an option on your vehicle? Yeah, we absolutely did in the early years, and I think the the issue is always the additional structural work you have to do in the system, in the chassis system, for example, to manage a swappable battery. Now, um, do I think we'll have breakthroughs there? I, I do think so, um, but we're not yet ready to put that in uh, into the vehicle as a quick swap. Right? We can swap the batteries, but it's an operation. So, for example. Um, and I don't know how much we've actually disclosed of this, but for example, you can get to the battery from under the vehicle and you can, you can change out batteries. And interestingly, our battery tech, what we do is we connect the batteries in parallel. And so if anything goes down, we can actually just change one module. I think you've seen, right? We don't have the pack. We have small modules that we add as much capacity as needed in the vehicle. So if one of those goes down, we can, we can take it out and change it. But yeah, we did, we did consider, you know, better place type technologies in, in very early. Um, I think we had the same friends. <laughs> We've been around for a while, Alex. We've seen it all. And, and I mean, it seems to me that one of the advantages of, you, of, of sort of serving a commercial market with EVs is that, right, you have a lot of data, whether it's from Uber, whether it's from UPS and delivery, they know how much their cars actually go out and drive every day. And I feel like one of the challenges in the in the in the commercial market, right, is that you kind of have to size that battery for like the you know oftentimes five percent or one percent use case, right? The road trips and, and things like that. And so I feel like you know Tesla's been popular by giving people a lot of battery, but you know as these supply chain sort of constraints kick in, like that's kind of maybe not a, a scalable solution here, right? And so so talk about how that how that you know going for a commercial application allows you to sort of be more precise in how you. How you size the battery? I mean, you, you, you again. You hit it on the head. So if you, I, this was something I learned. Let's which not was, like boost his ego too much, Charlie. <laughs> Just take it down. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you for keeping me humble. <laughs> but it, 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 and so this was surprising to me. But when you, because I've also heard, you know, we need these two, three hundred mile range vehicles, and you know, but when you look at the commercial segment, it's almost like a bell curve when you look at actually distribution of range that's actually required, and you have. Most of the vehicles, the bulk of the vehicles doing under 100 miles, even though you think that they're driving a ton, especially in urban environments, there's a lot of stop start start activities, but the actual mileage that they do isn't that much compared to um, suburban environments where, yes, you are touching your 200 mile odd uh, range that you require. So as a result, you know, we allow customers to flex the number of modules accordingly because because they do know what their fleets are, you know, folks like UPS or, or Uber or any of the commercial vehicle organizations, they have the choice to say, look, we know 50, 70, 80% of our fleet is under 100 miles. Let's go and purchase X amount of vehicles at that range. And then we know the remainder are higher and let's go for a higher battery. Um, and to your point with the supply chain, that helps save on cost, but it also helps save on complexity. You're not carrying the weight around of the battery, which is the most expensive part of the vehicle. Along and not using it, right? So you don't have this sort of unused piece of gold sitting in, in your vehicle. Maybe gold was the wrong element. Palladium, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. So, uh, I want more questions, char- but go, Kirsten. Well, I, I, I wanted to follow up really quickly on the charging part um, with the depot's idea. Um, is Arrival, though, toying around or you mentioned on the consumer side, like, having partnerships like on the Uber, on the Uber deal. But what about just building out your own charging infrastructure? Um, even, even if it's not commercial, because as you mentioned, and I think we've talked about this before, EV charging is actually a bigger deal than I think people realize. And it's not just about building the infrastructure out, but actually having it work properly. I mean, Alex can tell you this, I can, and Ed, I mean, you go just driving around anywhere and there's a 50% chance that that isn't going to, that charger isn't going to be used or, um, you know, there could be a variety of problems with it. And so it's not just about building the charger. It's about it working well, actually working to the stated amount of charge that it can really provide. Oftentimes it's way under, um, including Tesla superchargers of what is advertised. So, What's Arrivals thinking about that? Maybe you're not going to do the better place model, which actually we're seeing other companies get into again, which is interesting. But maybe it's just like 
building your own sandbox like Tesla did. So I think the first point is that we don't want to have our own standard for any of those. So we want to be um, basically using industry standards for any of our charging protocols. And I think we have essentially with the vertical integration. So if you think about the, the components we've developed, BMS, the battery module, of course, inverters, DC-DC, low voltage systems, you sort of, by doing all those systems, you've essentially built all of the asset locks of a charging station, right? Now, we could use those technologies into that. And, and of course, we played around with, with those ideas. Right now, though, the focus is on, is on startup production. So that's where we are. But we do have these technologies within our back, back pocket that could be configured into those sorts of ways, just like energy storage, right? It's an obvious next step for the, the types of technologies that we have. But mo- most importantly, is, is there a mixed-use model whereby the depots and retail, so the commercial and retail environment can somehow come together to share the charging networks? And that is very interesting to me because we have a lot of unused space for majority of the day that may already be upgraded. And then you're upgrading a retail network, which is essentially not matching where um, the requirements as well. So is there a way to somehow combine these two worlds? You know, you have, um, we've always talked about, for example, we've always talked about car parks being used to charge or shopping center, uh, uh, your, your Safeway or Walgreens or whatever you have, the car park using to charge retail vehicles, but there's a whole bunch of commercial vehicles that could use that same infrastructure, right? So is there a way to come together with that is something that we are actively exploring, I would say. It doesn't necessarily have to be our technology, right? It, that's a partnership. All right. So let's go to a higher level question. Uh, I, know you, I know what you're going to say. You're like, come on. Uh, <laughs> come on. All right. So you never know. You, know, you never know. He might answer our question. <sighs> Every generation, somebody shows up and says, clean sheet design, we're, we're rebooting all this, we're going to do this. Tesla, great example of that. And ever since then, people are like, ah, the Tesla killers are coming. And well, we, other than BOID, I don't know if we've seen anything that's really, really interesting. So now we've got, we've got micro factories, composite materials, some modularity to your batteries and vehicles. Uh, what is the moat? Around this, like this, like, <laughs> come don't on. Prevent. I don't yeah, you say, oh, this looks good. We can do that. Like, what's the moat? The moat is is quite a few. One is you cannot take an existing vehicle and design it for a, um, a micro factory, right? So, at a base level, the micro factory becomes a moat in and of itself. There's a ton of technology that has been developed by Arrival to enable that method. Even if you took out, we are very open that our composite, for example, is polypropylene and glass fiber. I, I mean, I'll tell the whole world. But you can not take that composite and recreate the panel. You can't take those two materials and recreate the panel the way we've done. That's a whole technology challenge that you're going to have to go on. And then we know, Alex, that the first thing that OEMs and competitors do when there's a new vehicle is they buy it and they tear them down. And then they go, oh, okay, that's what they've done. That's what they've done. That's what they've done, right? Um, The OEMs are a big ship to move. Very, very, very big ship. And uh, everything takes five years. So, you know, regardless of the moat, there is already a very large advantage on the technology platforms and the time that will take for anybody to recreate the system. At the same time, I would encourage people to use the microfactory. And there's no reason why every layer of technology that we've built in the system isn't something that can be shared with other folks uh, in the in the in the space. And then, of course, you've got the deep level of software. Like, <laughs> I mean, the, the software that Arrival builds is probably the, the most unknown thing about the organization. Um, you know, so we have software ranging from how an engineer can release a part and into the microfactory simulation that says whether or not the microfactory can build it. And, you know, really designing around that idea of, of simplicity is all being done, driven through the software tools that enable the engineers to actually build the vehicle, design the vehicle in, in the way that we need. So, you know, you know, if you say to an engineer, design simplicity, I mean, I don't know what that means. 
But if you can constrain it, for us, it's it has to be within our grid architecture, has to be able to be assembled in a microfactory, has to hit this production rate, and then you can provide the software tools to enable that. Now I can sort of corral the engineering in the right direction to enable what, what we need to uh, design. And then you've got the microfactory, you've got the autonomous mobile robots that are in-house built. These are all accessible through APIs. You've got the vehicle platform, the skateboards, the components all have, we write the lower level code. We've got APIs. We've got the software tools that uh, customers can then tap in and read real time every bit of that. I can sit here right now and log into our bus that's sitting in Spain and see what's going on through the CCTV cameras, right? So we've got, you know, we've got an immense amount of software capability that's really quite unknown because we, we literally design, you know, 70 odd percent of the vehicle uh, in-house systems. The only things that aren't are safety critical systems like braking and steering airbags. The rest is all actually inbuilt. So I'm looking forward to that day because I think the microfactory, I think the first question everybody's going to be asking is, how the heck do you do that, that those capex numbers? Yeah, well, let's let's talk about the microfactory because I'm I'm this is something that fascinates me. Um, you know, uh, Tesla obviously done amazing work, sort of uh, developing new designs that speak to consumers and stuff, but obviously have struggled a lot on the manufacturing side. And and one of the things that struck me listening to you on stage uh, with Kirsten was you said a couple of things. I mean, A, the fact the fact that we're talking about microfactories is fascinating because, you know, again, Elon always talks about this is going to be the biggest factory ever. And, you know, it, bigness is like some kind of intrinsic good to him for reasons that I think a lot of people in manufacturing don't, don't really always understand. Um, but then he just has these, these the problems again and again with, with manufacturing. And, you know, if you look at the history of the auto industry, you know, that's where real change starts to happen. And as far as I'm concerned, this microfactory concept is the sort of most fundamental rethink of how you build a vehicle that that you know I see anybody out there kind of really doing right now. So, talk us through if for for the people who don't understand sort of what a microfactory is, how it's different from traditional manufacturing, but maybe also like I don't know, I've never really heard sort of where this idea came from or sort of how you know because it seems like it's it's really the heart of the company in a lot of ways. So if you could maybe contextualize that and explain it a little for us, that would be great. Yeah, so the microfactory you know, sort of has key attributes. One is obviously they're small. That's why we call them microfactories. So it's a much smaller footprint than typically seen in the industry. So we're talking about twenty to 30,000 square meters or approximately 215,000 square foot. And you essentially can take an existing warehouse and turn it into a production facility. How do we do that? We don't use a conveyor belt. You will not see any conveyor lines at all inside a microfactory. That technology does not work with what we're trying to do. One of the problems with the conveyor belt is you're at a fixed single speed, right? The conveyor belt moves around and you do all your operations on the belts, human and robots interacting accordingly on that, on that line. Any issue in the line stops, but the capital required for the tooling, et cetera, is so high that you're kind of driving higher and higher production rates to get more and more economies of scale so you can get can improve your margin. And Tesla's done a great job. I mean, in terms of margins, they're they're the best in the industry, right? So, but there's a lot of inefficiencies in that system. One of them is that your vehicle is always being tooled for hundreds to 200,000 units, regardless of what's actually happening in the market dynamics, right? And now what I would be doing in a previous life is I'm sitting here trying to predict, okay, in five years, where's the market going to head? I'm going to engineer my vehicle for that and I better get it right because that architecture has to last 10 to 15 years and I'm going to spend billions of dollars in CapEx on it. And you can actually track this back. Many OEMs got caught out with the moves from sedan to SUVs. Those who didn't have that in their portfolio plan ahead of when that transition happened, right? So, you know, for us, the transition happened in one year, but the OEMs had to predict it five years ahead of that. And those that didn't miss out, right? And part of that is the production system. You're just going at massive volumes and you've got to repay this this um, huge capex that you put in and amortize it over many years. And then when you add a new vehicle, you start with that because it's already in place and you start with that factory and you go from there and so on and so forth. So we kept on asking the question, why is it like this? And when you think about the commercial vehicle segment, they don't need 300,000 of one vehicle type. The market has many millions, you know, it's a huge, huge market, but they need a very specific type of vehicle to solve a very specific need. 
and they cannot go to the OEMs and say, hey, I want this configuration of this vehicle. You know, basically it's like, well, you can have what we build and you can have it in black, right? So essentially, because the production system limits the capability to have that flexibility. And so when we looked at that and we said, why is it like this? You know, we started by, you know, designing vehicles and then we quickly realized that actually what needs a fundamental redesign is the production method. We haven't changed it for 100 years. We've optimized it. It's incredible. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say it doesn't work. It's not amazing. I love car factories. They're incredible. But if you use today's technology, would you design it that way today? And our view was no, no way. It's too limited. It costs too much. It's inflexible. And it's hard to introduce innovations mid-cycle with that production system. So smaller footprint. And we're talking about around 50 million in CapEx to tool it up. Now, what's important about a micro factory is it can build any type of vehicle. And we're showing a bus, a van, and a car for very specific reasons. Those are three very different footprints of a vehicle, right? But it can all be built in a micro factory. And a micro factory then, so for example, the van micro factory, we've got one in Bista that we're you know, months away from start of production and one in Charlotte. And we are actually able to use a blueprint for the micro factory. They're essentially the same. So to have tech cells, so instead of a line, you have a technology cell, which is a collection of about six robots that they're fixed. And we have multiple cells inside the factory. And we have autonomous mobile robots bring the part into the cell. The cell uses computer vision, recognizes what the part is, knows its operation, and does the operation within the cell. No welding, you know, so we use bonding and gluing. Um, and we'll talk, I'll touch on paint shops and metal stamping in a second. So then the assembly operations happening within the tech cell. So theoretically, you could build the whole vehicle within one tech cell. We don't do that uh, just because of optimization, but you could. So we have multiple cells. If a cell was to go down, production wouldn't stop. It would just continue. It just reorganize itself in through the other cells. And so what essentially you're creating is off-the-shelf robots um, in terms of the, the tech cell internally designed AMRs, and then a software-defined factory. Everything is run for a software layer that we control, and we'll find a ton of improvements. You know, Right now, it's 10,000 units on two shifts, 10,000 vans on two shifts in the micro factory, but we're at the start of that journey, right? And I really expect us to, to drive a ton of improvement on it. So you're looking at 10,000 vans per year. You've got 50 million of capital investment in a facility that's about 200,000 square foot, in an existing warehouse, and you can ramp, you can start production within six to twelve months. When you think about that, I can deploy capacity in ten thousand chunks in parallel, right? So I could go, oh, this market is really blowing up. We need hundred thousand units there. Let me put ten micro factories down in different parts of the country and deliver to their local environments, right? We're not shipping them all around the world. We don't need to wait five years to get a to get a um, large factory and ship them, ship those vehicles all around the world. So the return on investment is really short. But more importantly, the flexibility means if tomorrow the markets change, I can change what that micro factory does. Or if it's really gone bad, those robots can just be reused in another micro factory. They're all blueprints. So we've only touched the surface. I mean, what I think what people think of on a micro factory is that, okay, it's a really tiny footprint micro factory and it's decentralized. But there's so many new benefits coming from this approach that I think it's a fundamental rewrite of the rules of the industry. You know, it's really changing the way you think about it. Now I can start to say, well, if I've got 100,000 vans per year and we target about a, a 100 million margin on that factory, I can pay that back in six to 12 months. Now I can put any new vehicle type I want into that thing and I can start to play around. Do I need to make 200,000 of the same thing. Maybe I want to run a short batch in between all of those of something custom, you know, and you can start to play then with the products because what has changed is the system to produce vehicles has changed. So then the output, which is the vehicles, they don't have to all be the same. And this is really what we've been driving. And, and it came from the lack of flexibility for us to do what we wanted to do in the commercial vehicle segment because the production system was flawed for that. And then when you start asking just three whys, why is it like this? Or why is that like that? 
Why is that like that? You end up realizing the answer because is because because it's always been like that, and that that's not good enough. So paint shop, you know, you, you have million square foot, hundred millions in capex, amazing system by the way, but extremely complicated. You need environment, uh, environmental clearance. So we just started by asking the question: Well, why do we need paint? And then you start going down this huge rabbit hole that took us, you know, seven years to figure out. But, you know, you start to say, well, you know, if we're using steel, so why, why are we using steel? And you start to go through all of these sort of blank sheet approach to Alex, to your earlier point. Um, but you come out with a ton of different technologies. And our history is important there because we were private, um, privately funded without even uh, seed investment, external seed investment for for our first four or five years, which let us go and without distraction, break down these sort of technology barriers before going out. And, and our first investment was, was from Hyundai Kia before going out and getting external investment. Because as an entrepreneur, if I had just got the materials technology ready and got investment, I don't think I'd be allowed to go and say, okay, I want to go and make a micro factory. I want to go do all my components. Want, you know, at some point they're going to say, go commercialize those materials. That's good enough for now. And they'll come back. But because we didn't have that external pressure, we were able to just go through each of these technology layers and develop them to a point where now they're coming together to you know, start production later this year. But I, I, I firmly believe it's, a, it's just it's transformative. Microfactory is transformative. Not limited to cars either. It doesn't have to be vans and cars. It could, it's just a production facility in your city. So I have a bunch of questions following up on that. When the first, when Arrival was just a seed of an idea, is it safe to say that the concept of microfactory, the concept of the materials you used, was that not yet realized or even a blip? And it was, hey, let's create a electric commercial vehicle company. And then you went down that question of why, why, why and got to this? Yeah, I think the... It was known that the production system was going to be an issue. And then it became the why, why, why to, to get to it. So it was like the kernel of the idea was there, but it wasn't really formulated until you really start asking the questions. And so electric were you on vehicle, the ground? Were you on the ground floor of that? I mean, did you join? We know, no, I, I know that. Yep. I know that uh, what Dennis Fedlov founded the company, right? So by the time, maybe talk to me about like when you joined the company, I'm, curious at how developed the idea was. I mean, was this just like coming out of Dennis's mind and like a small group of people? I've never really gotten the sense of like what those early days were like. Yeah. So, I mean, small teams can do really incredible things. And I think, you know, sometimes as, as you start to add more and more employees, it can, you know, you've got to be at a certain sort of maturity before you do that. So Dennis had, some world experts with him, um, you know, for example, on material design and they had been going on. So I first met uh, Arrival, well, Dennis in 2018. And so by then, I think there were two and a half, three years into the journey. And I came to visit the market factory in the UK. At that point, it was just a R&D facility. And, you know, I saw the tech cell uh, that we were just discussing. I saw one operating and I just went through, I saw the design release process. I saw the engineer releasing CAD in the system saying yes or no, whether or not this, the microfactory, the textile could build it. Uh, the composite materials were almost there. They weren't yet industrialized, but in terms of being able to do, do the early prototypes and the proof points, that was already there. Uh, but more importantly, the, the team just blew me away. They were just incredible. And I, and I hadn't heard of Arrival, you know, and, and I was out at, at GM in the advanced tech office, supposedly, you know, we had seen all the startups and um, that was part of my role. And then we had this sort of silent company out in the middle of UK that no one had heard of, um, at least internally. And then just looking at the level of technology in the team, I was like, this, they're onto a winner. But myself, as an entrepreneur coming up through the traditional system, I was never happy with it. You know, so my background's mechatronics and computer science and sort of my computer science brain is always like why can't we move, why can't we release stuff faster why don't we do the software side better why is it why are we not moved on robotics in in this industry right 
Um, and my sort of mechanical engineering brain was like, hey, hardware is tough. It's just going to take a long time. But the approach was, to me, never felt right. It just was always the same. Like I've, you know, been in conversations where the first time a vehicle is even sketched up, it's like, okay, that's going to be 500 million in investment in the, in the, in the factory. And you're like, what? Like, you know, it's almost a given. Um, and so we, we didn't really, uh, I, I, it, it never sat right with me. And the, in particular, the product release time never sat right with me. I think always thinking about, you know, what we, we're going to take. And back then it was even longer. You know, OEM's done a tremendous job getting that time down, uh, three to four years now. But then when you include the factory, et cetera. But, but back then it was even longer. You know, and a vehicle architecture would take you five to six years and then you're waiting for the factory to spool up. And it was just at the start of, you know, the, the sort of internet craze and everything moving a lot faster. So it did work. It's, it's, it's amazing. But does it fit today's world? I don't think so. So when I met Dennis and I saw what they were doing and the vertical integration, this is an important point because, you know, the OEMs, they moved away from vertical integration. And the key sort of IP they held on to was the powertrain. And interestingly enough, most OEMs have a powertrain division, right? And that's where a lot of the sort of innovations were happening. But they, as, as we moved to electrification, the whole skills required had changed. And, you know, that's what I saw at Arrival was putting together in the vertical integration, designing all the electromechanical systems in-house, writing all the control code, um, electrical architectures all done in-house. I was like, yeah, this is, this is where the industry is going to go. It's at least worth a shot, that's for sure. Hmm. Okay, this is a little bit of a silly question, but, um, well, first up is will you always use existing um, like warehouses or will you build new for the micro factories? It, it depends. So we've done a combination of both as we're scouting out the locations of the micro factories. Um, sometimes built to suit makes sense. Sometimes just jumping into a warehouse makes sense. So there's no reason if the building exists, it'll take us six to 12 months. If not, then you have to add the time to put up a warehouse. But there's so, no, no, yeah. Okay. So here's my kind of cheeky question. Um, how big can your micro factory be? Like, when does it stop being a micro factory? Yeah, yeah. Um, or could you just like, why not take all those concepts that you had, but just make it bigger? Build a factory. A mic, a mic, a a, a micro gigafactory, for example. Oh, a mega like, micro factory. I've heard yeah. that. Micro factory cluster. So why yeah. why do we think that that would be better? Technically, we can do it, but I just want to ask you guys. So if you could just make it bigger how big would you make it well i guess i'm just wondering if you're the heart of the question is really is that are you li- are are you fundamentally as a company like structured in a way philosophically and also just like way you're putting resources restricting yourself to size um if you wanted to let's say have in a particularly hot area let's say charlotte for example and let's say the bus uh, the vans are taking off and you can fulfill that by having that one factory instead of having another factory located, you know, maybe like you could sprinkle factories along that coast, let's say, or you can just have a bigger factory there and you'd still reach all those same places. Why not have a bigger factory there because it's more a little bit more centralized, a little easier to control? Yeah, sure. Maybe you're using existing warehouses but you're still having to staff those in a way that might be less efficient. So I'm not saying you could turn around and all of a sudden they're building, you know, factories that have an annual capacity of 300,000. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is if there's, you know, like how loose can you be with um, or flexible can you be in terms of the size or the capacity in these micro factories? Yeah. And, and the only reason I asked, I was just wanting to, hear your thoughts on it because if you take the walls off a microfactory if you just imagine they weren't there what you're seeing is simply a blueprint of a system that makes 10,000 vehicles so okay. you can multiply that as many times as you want whether it's in well, one building two buildings yeah. three buildings because the 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 whole 
module is built around you need this many robots, this many AMRs, this many people, you do your 10,000. And the efficiency is already there. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, yeah, that totally makes sense to me. But let's say you're using a warehouse in an existing business park. And you're like, actually, we could totally add another 10,000 blueprint. Oh, yeah. That's my point. You could just literally add a... You could just add another module to it, right? Right. So then the question comes down to, are you thinking of when you're looking at locations, like some business parks, for example, it's not so easy to add that. You would have to go to a different location. Maybe it's 10 miles away and maybe that's not a big deal. But if you really wanted to like just have it right next to each other, are you thinking in terms of that when you're looking at locations and like the ability to grow and add on and kind of- yeah looking at at, that's a deciding factor factor for example like a business park that you could there's enough empty space or there's enough room for growth that you could add more or is that not even a factor because you can go 10 miles down the road to the other empty warehouse and you know that's where that next you know increased capacity will come from yeah i think yeah Proximity to the city center or your main customer, for example, is one of the considerations. How much upfitting, of, if at all, is required of the building? Um, what is the inroads into the into that area and in highways, etc., for uh, deliveries is needed? So there's a whole checklist that we go through to decide where the microfactory would be. When we think about one of the key things is, you know, cities want local production. So that partnership is critically important to us too. So we are in conversation with many uh, local governments about that. If we see the market, like say, for example, you know, LA with how many hundred thousands of vehicles are there, if it requires two micro factories, we can absolutely either plan ahead for that. So you know, just have a bigger spot or just put two micro factories down. Um, so there's no limitation. That's, that's uh, you know, I really want to get that across. There's no limitation to capacity right? Um, on the word micro doesn't mean small capacity. It means small footprint. The capacity simply comes by just adding more and more sure. blocks to it, right? And you but just that, keep going. I, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to understand, and, and it's clear to me now, is you know when you see areas and you have this flexibility, but when you see these areas where you can add on, like how early are you thinking about that, um, and and what that what that looks like. Um, yeah, My only yeah, other question about that is, are you prioritizing setting these things up in urban centers? Because a lot of factories aren't in the middle of a city. They're in suburbs, and that can be difficult to get to, like, transportation-wise. So are you thinking about that in terms of, like, worker base? Um, and what does that look like? Close to city center. So, like, Charlotte's like 25, 20 minutes away from the city center. So close to the city center. Um, but, of course, it must have access roads, et cetera. Um, so it's it is you know there's a site selection process I would say, but when you think about, I think your the question you asked earlier is like how do we then how do we look to scale it, right? Because I want to make sure that we set up all of our systems that how we deploy the microfactory is really just in our hands and it's really quick and easy. So we have the requirements of a microfactory how we want to do it you know, government relations to cross off, of course. But the point being is the flexibility is inbuilt that we just go, okay, we were at, we at, we're at two microfactories now. Next year, I want X amount. Let's get moving with it. And we know exactly where we need to be and how to deploy them. And what's great about it is they can all come on in parallel. So it's very different to how you would put on a regular microfactory. And, and even if you put two microfactories side by side or within one building, um, we still treat them as they're, as an individual module because it's optimized for that type of production capacity. And this is important because again, we're not on a production line. So it's not like we're just growing the production line, the conveyor belt longer and longer and longer. We're not doing that at all. The, for, the, for example, the composite, the fab- fabrics in the micro factory, it's on a roller, it gets fed into a laser cutter, laser cutter cuts it, picks it up, puts it into the mold. AMR basically takes that out of there, brings it to the tech cell, Tech cell starts grabbing that panel, puts it on the vehicle, and everything comes into that cell. So if you were doing one microfactory next to another, you would literally keep them exactly the same because they're operating sort of independently, right? And you could just keep adding and adding accordingly. So yes, you could scale it within a building or you could scale it across many. And we sort of size the 10,000 to be 
you know, the average requirement for electric vans within a city or, or region of cities. Um, last question, then I'm going to hand it over. So you were at GM, for people who don't know this, you were um, actually pretty critical, I think, to the cruise deal, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you've yeah. spent some time, obviously, with the big le- legacy automakers. Do you think that the Ford and GMs of the world will ever shift away from the way that they um, currently manufacture? Or maybe a better question is, will they be forced to? <laughs> I think they'll be forced to. But, you know, I love this question because, I've, I, you know, we can all sit here and, and also ponder, would they have ever gone electric if it wasn't for Tesla? So, <laughs> you know, it's interesting, right? Because... Um, I think we're seeing the OEMs being extremely responsive, most that I've seen in, in my time in the industry to the changes of the industry, but it's not an easy thing uh, for them to move that fast. And in the particular in the case of the micro factories, you, know, you still have the assets on your book. You've got billions of dollars in factories. I mean, you can't just turn that off. So you end up with this sort of innovator's dilemma problem. Um, and you can see, you know, Ford, I think, did a really smart move of splitting off a whole new business. Essentially, is like, you know, you're not really competing against yourself, but in a way you are because you've essentially got this new production method. And at some point it takes out what, what you're doing, but you need to decide when the shift is. And I think they will be forced to. They're forced to do a lot of things that I don't believe they would have done if the market dynamics didn't change around them and the pressure even of, um, society in terms of electrification and a competitor like Tesla has really made a, like, I don't think there's, at least in the US, all the OEMs are full electric portfolio coming out. You know, I was there in the early days where we, ha- we had the chance to respond to that really early and chose not to for various reasons, you know, right or rightly or wrongly. Um, so market dynamics, I think, can make the OEMs move very quickly. And, and you know, I think on the electrification front it's about you know market share and will companies still be relevant if they don't have at least a significant electric portfolio against all of the newcomers and um so we're asking that question but we're also asking a fundamentally different question which is how can you complete compete with a flexible manufacturing system and that you know i mean it's up to them to respond to that one (laughs) So I have, I have one last question and then I'll, I'll let Alex take us home um, since we're, we're basically out of time here. Um, uh, but, you know, we've gotten all the way through um, almost an hour here and, and uh, no, we haven't asked about driving automation technology, which I know is, is part of what you're, uh, what you're doing. Um, so I'd love to, to just get a little bit of sense of kind of just your philosophy about it. I mean, are, you know, is, is arrival going to solve full self, you know, full self driving? Like, is it going to be more limited stuff? Did you just um, say solve watch, full no, self driving? No, that's it. You just said, it's, yeah. a, it's a test. Oh. It's, it's a test. <laughs> I'm, 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 and you just lost all I'm that. I'm building you up, and you I just. Know. <laughs> I no, I use those words for for a reason. I'm I'm always curious to see how people react to them. Um, so so philosophically, sort of, uh, you know, what, what's going on with driving automation technology? What are you trying to accomplish? But then also maybe, do you ever worry that you're doing too much? Just because uh, you know, reinventing manufacturing is a really big thing. Uh, you could definitely build a huge company just around that piece of it. Uh, you've explained, I think, really well why you have to design the product in 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 partner with, uh, you know, in, in concert with that, that makes sense. Driving automation gets into another area and, and, and software and all these other things. Like, it, does it sometimes feel like, like, like there's too much happening or is it all just, does it have to be one package? Um, so kind of a, kind of a, a broad and a specific question in one, but um, there you go. Maybe I'll start with that first and then we can yeah. talk about the uh, autonomy. No, because it's all about rollouts. It's all about when do these things come online and, the very first focus right now is start a production, bring it all together for the van. And so, you know, we just um, uh, announced our bus certification recently. Our van is about to be certified, but it's the same process. That's, that's the interesting thing, right? So the microfactory, it's the same process. It's the same process of design. And the components are shared across all the vehicles. So when we design the components and we say, okay, we're using a bus, van, car, we're not redesigning the components for each application. They're just reused like Lego pieces. The composite is reused. Um, it's exact same material, properties, chemistry, exactly the same. 
um, just a few molds are different. And so, you know, when you when you look at it that way, it's it is a lot. I'm not going to say it's not a lot, but it is focused on very specific objectives, and that's the key. And right now, the organization is is focused heavily on reaching startup production this year. It's why we're not, you know, talking about release dates of Carve right now. It's because that's our focus. To do that, though, we have to cross off, you know, the the components, the composites, the certification, you know, all of the technologies that we've been building, and then we'll add in from there. Everything becomes additive. You know, when do we want to add the software layers and etc. 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 So you start to sort of build from that point. But the real starting of the organization uh, is reaching startup production. So it's all for a reason, I would say. Now, autonomy, yeah, it's something close to my heart. Um, Alex, we've seen, we've been there for a while. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I was, uh, I was at GM and um, yeah, led the acquisition of Cruise, which was incredible experience. Uh, was also part of Cruise. I think autonomy is is coming. It's always going to be a debate of when is it regional, is it global, yeah. Is it something that we've even from a hardware perspective we can keep up with? You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns there, but we're seeing some traction, I would say, in the capability of the autonomous system as a whole. Uh, depending on whether you're using brute force or you're going for more more of an AI approach. When it comes to commercial vehicles, what's interesting is the depot is the area where it's a controlled environment today, and a controlled environment, modern current technologies, even without lidars you can create an autonomous depot right now. And so we've shown that in um, one of the bodies of work that we've done that we essentially have a van just driving around the depot in autonomous mode, going from cleaning station to loading station to repair bay. Um, and that's relatively straightforward with, with what we have now. Going forward, I think commercial vehicles would adopt a lot of autonomous technologies, but there's no necessary need right now for that segment to move fully autonomous because, I mean, if you're a delivery van, like, all right, I'll drive the car autonomously, but what do I do with the package? You know, like it's still sitting in the back of the van. And, and, a, and a bus driver has more has other things to do than just driving that represent a safety standard, et cetera, in the vehicle. So I think you'll see in the commercial vehicle segment, it's one of the earliest to adopt autonomous technologies, but we for a very specific use case that makes sense operationally and the depot is the primary one and then you'll have the adas you know systems that enable the driver to drive better so you know we use the same camera system um in our vehicle to do like bicycle monitoring for a bus you know so you know so it doesn't um accidentally have an incident with a with a pedestrian or cyclist or something so you can use a lot of technologies within our segment already and then there'll be very unique applications like if a delivery van is parked while the driver's getting out, you can literally circle the block. You know, we've sort of seen these sort of ideas before, but they're very real in the commercial segment. Most importantly is we don't know where this whole thing will land. So what can we do from an architecture standpoint to enable multiple solutions for autonomy within our vehicle platform? And what we've done there is, you know, we were talking about the electrical architecture, but we essentially created the vehicle as a plug and play architecture, similar to like desktop technology. Um, and I use that <laughs> almost specifically because like compute, right? It's like a blade architecture. I can add or subtract compute as needed. We know that's a big issue going forward, but also compute boxes being able to change in and out because we know how much range they take up with current, but at some point we're going to get better with that sensor technology being able to get really low-level control um, through the sensor fusion to our uh, components. When I say low-level, I mean like anything you can change, two-way communication into the components. So you can adjust basically any parameter of our components through the APIs. Now, I'm not just talking about control software. I'm talking about behavior of motors, behavior of batteries, behavior of HMI, you know, all down into the weeds of how you want to control the components. That's a level of depth in the architecture that because we wrote the code and designed it in that way, enables the vehicle to be autonomous ready without us necessarily having to go and have solving autonomous. So if you talk about too much, that to me would be too much, right? That's a big beast in and of itself. What we do have is um, you know, a company called RoboRace where we've been racing autonomous vehicles 
um, <laughs> and uh, pushing them to the extreme. And we do that so that we can understand the different architectural requirements within our commercial vehicle. So we're taking like, I don't know if you've heard of RoboRace, but it's basically, oh, yeah. it's about, okay, yeah. So that's got the world record for fastest autonomous car. And we push that to, we do really wild things there. Um, and we take the learnings from that and say, okay, well, you know, what can we do within our electrical architecture and, and compute platform on our bus and van and um, any vehicle that could at some point enable some of these more extreme technologies so we can plan ahead. But it's not about, just to be clear, it's not about us going and making a fully autonomous car. You know, our vehicles are about making them autonomous ready so you can partner with either a hardware provider or a software provider to turn that vehicle autonomous at the right time. So why, yeah. why don't you have contracts then with every autonomous vehicle developer? We don't need them right now. I think most importantly right now is we... So the vehicle is autonomous ready. It doesn't mean we need to put the development effort into doing those partnerships today. Most important is to get the van out out there. And then, you know, those are the sorts of things we, you know, we can do. Alex, final question. And then we got to wrap this sucker. That, that, you, you, yeah, that was my final question. So Okay. Go. Sorry. I stole all your thunder. <laughs> if you want to talk, Alex, we can talk. You know, I mean, uh, you let's talk later. Avinash, thanks so much for joining us. This is really interesting. And I'm very curious to, once the microfactory is up and running. I think that the Atonicast needs to go take a tour for sure. Yeah. Don't you want to do a UK special edition? Yes. The invite's open now, so you guys can come and see what we're up to. I mean, that would be awesome. Love I mean, for you guys to see it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you probably, don't have to convince really us to travel. Happen. So um, <laughs> that would be great. We should definitely talk offline about that. But thanks again for joining us and to our Atonicast or Atonicats. Thanks again for listening to another episode.